it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Spotless, a sexy and bold drama laced with dark humor from Esquire Network. Learn more about Spotless by downloading Coming Clean, a roundtable podcast that goes behind the scenes of TV's best dramas, and tune into the Spotless series premiere November 14th at 10 Eastern, 9 Central on Esquire Network. And by Mile IQ. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are your dollars. Every mile you don't log is money that you're losing. Mile IQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollars lost. Try Mile IQ for free today by texting HANGUP to 31996. That's HANGUP to 31996. And by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. I'm Ezra Klein, host of the new Vox podcast, The Weeds. Every week I'm joined by Sarah Cliff and Matthew Iglesias for a podcast for people who follow politics because they care about and love policy. We talk about healthcare, about economics, about the future of work. We get very nerdy. We get very into the weeds. In a way, you won't hear anywhere else. So subscribe to The Weeds now wherever you get your podcasts or at iTunes.com slash Panoply and join us for a discussion about what's really important in politics. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 9th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll discuss Greg Hardy's vileness and continued employment, and what, if anything, is different about this case of domestic violence in the NFL. 
We'll talk with Slate's Jamel Bowie about Missouri football players' decision to boycott the team after a series of racially motivated incidents on campus. And filmmaker Jonathan Hawk will join us for an interview about his latest 30 for 30 documentary for ESPN, The Gospel According to Mac, about Colorado football coach and Promise Keepers founder Bill McCartney. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. And Stefan, today's show, it's a lot of serious topics. So if you want to just yuck it up, suggest you do that in the next four to five seconds. <laughs> hey, the MLS playoffs, man. What's so wacky? Wacky! Wow, sports. Sports Tell can be kicks. fun. Sports can be fun. Super fun. Uh, with us from New York, it's Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. And sorry, Mike, the window for frivolity has passed. <laughs> okay. Well, then I'm very concerned about what's about to happen. <laughs> Let's take a moment of consternation. Yes. I do have a few uh, whimsy items, but in keeping with the spirit of today's broadcast, they're kind of whimsy with a with a touch of non-whimsy. With a fringe on top? <laughs> Bill's uh, captain, selected by Rex Ryan. Rex Ryan puts a lot of thought into how to best troll the opponent. So they're playing the Dolphins, and he chose all ex-Dolphins. Dan Carpenter, kicker, Charles Clay, kind of H-back. Richie Incognito, bully. <laughs> what what fun. What light fun. Incognito, number 69, B. That's what it says next to his name. Ugh. That guy sucks. Um, whimsy number two. Cam Newton likes to give... Uh, the ball after he scores a touchdown to a kid in the in the stands. Adorable mop. Yes. Yeah. So his former teammate Julius Peppers on the Packers knew of this when <laughs> Newton scored. He grabbed the ball away from him and threw it away. Whimsy. <laughs> Dickish whimsy. <laughs> Dickish whimsy. That's a great way to put it. Uh, Newton did retrieve the ball and give it to the Moppet. Whimsy. Happy Moppet. You guys have anything else? You know what John Lynch thought was whimsical? When uh, a lineman on the uh, Washington football team had his helmet knocked off by a lineman on the New England football team and was bloodied and appeared to be sort of dazed and concussed. He thought that was pretty funny. Hey, you want to know? former teammate, John Lynch. You want to know something? Hey, John. I'm going to yeah. say it. I'm not afraid. Patriots. <laughs> <laughs> I liked how the red zone dude, Scott Hansen, said that when Teddy Bridgewater got knocked unconscious, he was going to have to sit out for at least one play. <laughs> Got to know the rules. The rules are important. Yeah. So the Slate Superfest is next week, November 16th. So you have a few more days to get your ticket to what will be the Slate Podcast event of the year. Culture Fest is, will be there. The Political Gab Fest will be there. There'll be folks from Hamilton, the Broadway show, not the Hamilton Tiger Cats of the CFL. Um, they'll be I there. I that's who we were getting for our guest. <laughs> TBA. TBD. It should be really fun, and um, we're all excited about it. It's November 16th at 7 p.m. at Town Hall on Broadway. Um, you can get your tickets at slate.com slash superfestnyc. If you're a member of Slate Plus, we've also uh, got a little raffle going. We've curated a gift basket. If you want to sign up to be eligible to win that, go to uh, your email program and uh, email superfestraffle at gmail.com. If you are not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Just $5 a month, $50 a year. Get into the raffle. Get ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. One quick announcement. We're looking for an intern starting in early 2016. Uh, you can email us at hangup at slate.com if you're interested. We're looking for somebody in D.C. You can come in on Mondays, do a little research over the weekends. Very helpful to us. 
kind of fun. Ooh. It's paid. Ooh. Send us an email at hangupatslate.com. Mike Pesca is interested. Job. interested. He's a yeah. strong Ooh. candidate. All right. And on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk to John Hawk, who uh, just had this uh, Gospel According to Mac movie. We're going to do a segment on that, and then we're going to have him back for our bonus segment. Um, we're going to ask him about some of the other movies he's done and which ones he thinks deserve a postscript. To hear that bonus segment and others like it, um, sign up for Slate Plus, slate.com slash hangup plus. Ah, ah, I got it. It happened. What? what? The guest TBD? Yeah. That'll be Tyler Blinn Duffy of the Minnesota Twins. <laughs> what? T- TBD. You said you the guest was going to be TBD. I think he said TBA. He said TBA and then TBD. So I'm, I'm announcing it right now. Our guest will be Minnesota Twins pitcher Tyler Blinn, B-L-I-N-N, Blinn Duffy. Thank you. I hope he's still alive and available. Okay. (laughs) Tyler, see you next week. On Sunday night in Arlington, Texas, Greg Hardy had the Cowboys' only sack in the team's 33-27 overtime loss to the Philadelphia Eagles. This was Hardy's first game since Deadspin and Deadspin reporter Diana Moskovitz released police photos of Hardy's assault of his ex-girlfriend, as well as detailed reporting on Hardy's actions, which included throwing Nicole Holder against a wall, throwing her onto a futon covered with assault rifles, and choking her until she told him to kill me so I don't have to. Hardy was convicted of that assault, but he appealed and the charges were dismissed when Holder declined to be involved in that appeal. Hardy, who was drafted by the Carolina Panthers in 2010, played in just one game last year after being placed on the commissioner's exempt list while those legal proceedings unfolded. In March, the Cowboys signed him to a one-year, $11.3 million contract. He's now played in four games since his 10-game suspension for violating the NFL's personal conduct policy was reduced to four games by an arbitrator. In an October press conference announcing his return to the field, Hardy said, I pretty much feel like the Kraken with a lot of the sea creature style, same old G. Hardy, adding, this has been the most awesome period of my life. I'm a Dallas Cowboy. He subsequently got in a shoving match with teammates and an assistant coach on the sidelines and answered no comment next question to every inquiry in the locker room afterwards. This week, Hardy tweeted his regret, numeral four, what happened in past, And Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, who previously said that Hardy might not have been convicted because he didn't do it and that the player was a real leader, reiterated his support for Hardy, saying Greg has a commitment to us. He has a commitment to do the right thing. We expect him to do the right thing. Mike, pretty specific, huh? (laughs) The quote unquote, the right thing. Play the game the right way. Probably defined as not beating women. (laughs) What do you think of how this is all uh, played out? Mike, in terms of the opprobrium directed at Hardy and at the team, um, you know, when the opprobrium started versus when this act happened and kind of how it changed since the photos came out. I have three, three things to say about it. One, I think I want to be pretty harsh and say people are children, adults are children, but maybe I'll temper that by saying adults as defined by football media are children. The same issue with Ray Rice. You really need to see the video to know that beating a woman is wrong. You really need to see the pictures. I guess we really did need to see the pictures. I don't know. Again, maybe I'll cut us all as human beings a slack, uh, some slack and say it's human nature. But yeah, you really needed to see the pictures. Two, how often does Deadspin, which put these pictures in our face and uh, cut up some really arresting 
mm, no pun intended, videos to really show us how horrible it was and did a great job with this and has been doing great jobs like Kevin Johnson's story. That was fantastic. How long does Deadspin have to be the moral arbiter before idiots in media say, Deadspin, you know, with the Brett Favre dick pics? I mean, Deadspin is shaming gigantic media that's bigger than Deadspin. The third thing I'd say is, yeah, we've talked about just the issue before, beating women and what do you do? And I think I hypothetically uh, threw it to you guys and Josh, you said, yeah, I'd be fine with banning them forever. Okay. Uh, that's, uh, that's the moral stance. I don't know if I, I don't think I said that. All right. Maybe. Or I don't believe, I don't believe that. Well, I might've said that. I don't believe yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what would you do as commissioner? Would you with one non-conviction, you know, I know that there's a difference between our standards of proof in real life and our standards of proof for law and what you plead to and all that. What would you do? Would you ban them forever? If not, what standards would you have? And pretend that you're the commissioner, not buffoonish Roger Goodell who gets everything wrong and it's going to be easy to hoist Goodell on his petard because obviously he's a fool and he everything he does opens himself up to hypocrisy and he is the judge and jury. But what would the Solomonic decision be for a guy who does disgusting things like this? Since I was uh, mentioned by name, I, <laughs> yes, I deserve know, at least one minute. I, yeah. Can I talk? You 30 seconds. I, did, I need 30 one, minute, seconds. one minute to respond. So I have been pretty consistent in saying that I don't feel like Roger Goodell should have any involvement in disciplining players for off-field activity and actually feel like what's happened with Hardy is exactly what should happen in cases like this. And I'm extremely gratified that some pre-deadspin and definitely post-deadspin that the anger of people in the NFL and outside the NFL journalists as well as uh, fans seems to be pointed right at the Cowboys and at Jerry Jones because he's the one who made the decision to sign Hardy to give him the $11 million. He's the one who's defended that decision. And this is in, in so many different ways. This is exactly what needs to happen. The public needs to be informed about what the player did. And Deadspin did a fantastic job of informing the public about what he did, both with words and with photos. The ire of people needs to be pointed at the owner of the team that made the affirmative decision to sign the player, knowing what he did. And then whatever's going to happen after that is going to happen. If, if Jerry Jones wants to continue employing him, I totally support his decision to do that. Let me change that slightly. I don't support his decision to continue to employ him. But I think he's the one who should be making the de that decision. I don't think anyone else should be making it. And I think all of our anger is pointed at the right place, which is Greg Hardy and Jerry Jones. The transparency of Jerry Jones's behavior in through all of this is is, is so clear. Very he's, clear transparency. Very clear transparency. He has doubled down on the bullshit of second chance, and we want him to be here. Meanwhile, the Cowboys cut Joseph Randall, who had been involved in a domestic violence dispute uh, very recently, a couple weeks ago. Um, so what's the difference? After, what's the difference? The, the difference, difference is Darren that McFadden Greg Hardy, is a good The difference is that Greg Hardy is a better player yep. at his position. Yep. End of story. Jerry Jones Actually, looks one like other an difference. Ass. Actually, in, in like, well, just to be totally fair, the other difference is that and this isn't a good reason, but this is crucial, is that Greg Hardy committed his domestic violence when he was on another team. And yes. so that's so you can invoke the language of second chances. That's how 
the 49ers can cut Alden Smith and the Raiders can immediately mm-hmm. sign him because oh, we're, di- we're, different. we're a different organization. We're, di- so we're, we're going to provide him with the resources and give him a second chance. Even after there should be an NFL Craigslist for domestic abusers. <laughs> even after Sunday night's game against Philadelphia, the Cowboys players apparently surrounded Hardy in the locker room. The media didn't talk to him. And Jones opened his mouth again and said... Hardy has a commitment to do the right thing. We expect him to do the right thing. He has a commitment to his teammates. We're giving him the resources. Well, the way the NFL is set up relative to this behavior, we wanted to give Greg the second chance. And you lose that in the NFL if you don't do the right things. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. He'll do the right thing until he doesn't do the right thing. And, of course, he hasn't done the right things during this season, including <laughs> assaulting a coach on the sidelines. But, hey, if as long as you keep saying it, it is so. And that's, you know, that's how the NFL operates on a lot of fronts. Yeah. But Josh, your opprobrium is exactly in the right place. This Thank is you. a Jerry Jones issue. This is a Dallas Cowboys issue. I like Cowboys my opprobrium issue. to be praised. Mm-hmm. Yes, pra- <laughs> it was appropriate opprobrium. But it what? is nice though to have somebody who's just a, such a piece of shit, and there's like no gray area there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just it's just nice. Look how the NFL machine operates. On Sunday Night Football, Chris Collinsworth talked about Greg Hardy, and mostly what it sounded like was Chris Collinsworth saying that he really hates that this stuff exists, that this has to happen. Like, I want to just talk about football, but all this stuff exists. And uh, Brian Curtis, before the season, had talked to Chris Collinsworth, and basically that's what Collinsworth told him then, too. You know, Collinsworth feels uncomfortable having to discuss this stuff on the air. Um, and, you know, well, tough shit. You've got to discuss it because it is the 300-pound defensive lineman in the room, and it needs to be discussed. You know, if you take away the domestic violence, though, and if you take away the concussions, and if you take away the FanDuel and Roto whatever scandals, and if you take away the flyovers that were paid for, and if you take away the hypermasculinity, and if you take away the fact that they're not allowed to pursue their careers in the pros. And if you take away, you know, all the random leg injuries and arm injuries and all those other kind of in- injuries. Wait a minute. Is there football left? <laughs> then do you talk about the football or isn't that football? I was wondering. Antonio Brown made a great catch where he kind of tapped his toes on the sideline. Yeah. It was, I want I football mean, to eight, just be toe tapping. He did have 18 receptions. You're right. That was pretty good. <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that fourth and 25 chuck over the shoulder in the Ole Miss-Arkansas game. Oh, my God. That's pretty awesome. That's why we like football. Oh, and that, and that uh, Matt Castle <laughs> when he was scrambling and then Des Bryant caught it. I freaking hate that football so awesome because it sucks so much. <laughs> oh, so... I forgot. I forgot one opprobrium area, mm-hmm. which is the criminal justice system. Oh. The NFL has punished Greg Hardy more than the criminal justice system has punished Greg Hardy. And again, Deadspin, Diana Moskovitz, fantastic job exposing what really happened here. Photos, reporting. But you know how many just non-football players are beating the shit out of their wives and girlfriends and are getting the cases dismissed because the women are intimidated or they come forward and then decide not to for understandable and obvious reasons, or they're just never charged at all. And this is obviously a societal issue and a criminal justice Mm -hmm. issue. And Greg Hardy gets a lot of benefit from being an NFL player, a.k.a. $11 million. Well, Greg Hardy also gets some benefit because he was able to reach a settlement out of court with his accuser, Nicole Holder. Yeah. But let's I'm just saying, let's not forget that there are a lot of people who would 
get away with this without going to jail and would be able to go back to their jobs, even if they weren't in the NFL, right. just because of the inadequacies of our legal system. Right, but what the NFL has is a bully pulpit. It has the attention of the entire public. And so, yeah, we can sit here and say that the legal system is complicated and the legal system is murky and the legal system is screwed up um, and that legal that decisions made by the legal system are not absolute. But when it comes to a case like this, it's a red herring. NFL teams are not obligated to hire Greg Hardy or any other player under similar circumstances. All 32 NFL teams could say, I don't care what the court did or did not decide. Fuck that guy. Let him get a second chance doing something else. And also players could. You know, we're going to talk about that with Missouri. And look what happened with the Clippers. And obviously those players were just going to strike, essentially strike, we found out, if Donald Sterling retained ownership of the team. And so if this really upset them, they would do something similar. In fact, they may not even do something similar. Just don't surround them like circling the wagons, almost literally, cowboy metaphor. You know, and I'd have to say that knowing what I know about NFL teams, look, these these are big organizations. There are a lot of people on that team. And I am certain that there are many, many players on that Cowboys roster that don't like Greg Hardy and that don't condone having him be part of that team. And that it is some group, probably position related or defense related, that have supported him in a football sense because they want him to be a productive performer on the field. But in terms of a social conscience, I think it's fair to say that there are many players on the Cowboys that are uncomfortable with having Greg Hardy on that team. And, you know, the fact that this has been reported on, the fact that Hardy is an NFL player. We shouldn't take that for granted. I talked earlier this year about the Saints signing Kevin Williams, who assaulted uh, his wife, I believe, back when he was with the Minnesota Vikings. And when he signed with the Saints, I couldn't find a single report in the local or national media that brought that up. And it happened, you know, not when he was with the Saints. It happened when he was with another franchise. But the reporting is out there. And all that I ask and all that I want is for the press to acknowledge that these things happened and for owners, general managers to have to answer questions about why they're making the decisions that they've made. Because if you're making the decision, the very least you should have to do is just tell people in the world, like, this is why I'm I'm doing what I'm doing. And, well, you know, Peter King... Peter King in in MMQB uh, this week notes like Daryl Washington of the Cardinals pled guilty to assaulting the mother of his child, leaving her with a broken collarbone. Like, you know, Deadspin could do three or four more reports this week that would probably leave us Arizona Republic could yeah as as outraged and so you know the Hardy case it's almost like ideal in a way what the response has been from the media and from fans and like you still see what it gets us with which is greg hardy playing on the cowboys you know i also i fine i'll put on my Gloria steinem uh mask i have a Gloria steinem mask <laughs> it does strike me that the fact that there are no women involved in these uh decisions plays a role and so often when there is a decision to go the other way it's because Robert Kraft's wife said so, um, or even when the Bears decide to accept a player, they're asked, well, what about Mrs. McCaskey? So just the all-male bastionness of football plays a role in this. 
All right, that's definitely true, and that is a good place to end the conversation. This episode is brought to you by Esquire Network's new series, Spotless, a sexy and bold drama laced with dark humor. Spotless tells the story of a troubled man whose tidy life is turned upside down when his outlaw brother crash lands into his world, forcing dark secrets of the past into the light and getting both of them fatally involved in organized crime. Played out against a backdrop of Gene's niche crime scene cleaning business with gangsters, corruption, drugs, and death a constant hazard. Gene, Martin, and their dysfunctional family struggle to gain control over life, business, and their shared destiny. No one gets away clean. Find out what happens when the mob needs a little help cleaning up. Spotless premieres November 14th at 10 Eastern, 9 Central on Esquire Network. On Saturday, University of Missouri football player Anthony Sherrills tweeted, The athletes of color on the University of Missouri football team truly believe injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We will no longer participate in any football-related activities until President Tim Wolf resigns or is removed due to his negligence toward marginalized students' experience. We are united. With that message, the Missouri football team brought national attention to problems that not many people were paying attention to, despite a hunger strike, which remains ongoing, by a graduate student named Jonathan Butler. In the last two months, the president of the Missouri Students Association reported on social media that he'd been called racial slurs. A group of black students was interrupted again by racial slurs while rehearsing a performance, and a swastika made of human feces was drawn on a bathroom wall at the school. The group concerned students 1950, named after the first year that black students were admitted to the university, believes the University of Missouri system president, Tim Wolf, has been unresponsive to these specific events and to systematic racism on campus. Well, as of Monday, uh, during our recording of the podcast, Tim Wolf has responded and he has resigned after saying over the weekend that he would not. Uh, let's now welcome in Jamel Bowie. Slate's chief political correspondent. Hey, Jamal. Hello. So we have seen today the power that these athletes have. And I frankly am very surprised that the president resigned. What do you think about what's happened? I'm also very surprised. I, I think literally five minutes before I had read an interview with the student who was uh, engaged in the hunger strike. And my thought to myself was, oh, this kid's, this kid's going to die. <laughs> this kid is obviously very committed to this. And I, I was genuinely afraid that like the president was not going to resign and he was going to die res as a result of starvation. And quite literally five minutes later, after I had that thought, the Associated Press announced that he, the president had resigned. I think, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, Josh, there is this there's just cauldron of activism going back for the past couple of months. Everything from um, campus activism against uh, graduate student healthcare cuts, um, against sort of removal of Planned Parenthood on, on from the campus. There's the the assorted racist incidents, and so there's a lot of stuff happening. And I think it's important to situate the football players' actions within that context. It's not clear to me, for example, that if none of that had happened, and the football players went on strike in response to a couple racist incidents, that this would have had right. the same kind of legs. It's it's right. uh, it's obvious that the football players taking the stance was a massive catalyst. I mean, uh, the football program at Missouri, it's very important to the school. It's very important to the town. Um, there are millions of dollars at stake. And so the, the players saying, well, we're just not going to, we're not going to participate until something happens. Um, obviously push things forward. But I think in, in analyzing this, the, 
all this other activism cannot be set aside. It wasn't just the football players. Right, but the football players do seem to be the, the, the match here. Uh, Howard Bryant, sports writer, tweeted uh, on Monday morning, Michael Sam brought Butler, the student, water on Wednesday. Quote, there was nobody here, two tents and a reporter. Things change when sports gets involved. And, and I think that's the takeaway right. in what we've seen here and... In some ways, it's a culmination of some of the more overt activism among players in right. the last two to three years involving things as mundane as long bus rides at Grambling um, and the condition of their sports facilities to a unionization attempt at Northwestern right. to protests against the NCAA's food and, and stipend policies and right. scholarship policies. I mean, what's so interesting is that this seems to all of this together seems to point a way forward for campus activism around labor issues. I think what's what's so uh, important about this particular instance, it's, it's the players acting not just as students or not just as people who care about racism, but as workers, as laborers, um, as people who earn a tremendous amount of money for the institution. And for future campus activists, they're, they're especially at Division One schools, there might really be an avenue there in building these links to players, and especially, um, I mean, it's no accident that these are African-American players. These are people who their class backgrounds are, are I mean, they're working, they're more than likely they are working class kids. Um, and there, there's a real opportunity to build sort of cross connections between um, athletes and, and student activists for this kind of, of change and to make this kind of pressure. So I was uh, asking myself, all right, if I totally was behind the activism, what would I think? And then if I was totally against the activism, would I think something differently? Because I was very conflicted about the activism, mainly because I thought there was a dearth of real information about really detailing what these incidents were. I mean, we heard over the course of a year there were slurs said by someone, members of the Missouri community, we don't know who, against Missouri uh, students, and then this odd feces Nazi symbol in the bathroom. I don't even know what to think about that. And I wasn't even sure what the president did wrong, which is not say... I don't think he did anything wrong. I just couldn't even tell from press accounts what it was exactly that they were demanding, except you could say, look, if he's lost the faith of this large portion of the community, he must be doing something wrong. But I do think it is absolutely accurate to say that without the uh, football players, this wouldn't have come to a head. I think that... um I guess that's a heartening thing. I think it's disheartening that no white players uh, join them in the protest. I guess it is heartening that the coach. I don't think staff, that's, don't think yeah, that's yeah, the I case, think. though, Mike. They, they, they did release a picture that was looked to be the entire team, including the coaching staff, and the white coach uh, said that he supported the players. The coach actions. did say that, but I was tr kind of trying to find um, an instance where a white player explicitly tweeted that, or there was a white player uh, saying that he supported it, and all I found was press accounts saying that the players, all of whom are African Americans. So I, th I think that, I don't know, I, I am a little conflicted about what this all means, what Tim Wolf actually did. I don't know if the context to see it in is the context in, in, in sort of a Ferguson context and, you know, oppressed uh, uh, people finally having their say or more of a Yale context, which seems to me, you know, a lot of a lot of bother on college campuses about fits of peak. So I graduated from UVA, University of Virginia in 2009. And my first semester there in fall 2005, there was a big sort of 
I mean, it was a big racial incident. Um, uh, someone, I think, if I remember, there were a couple, so I may be blending several together. But I think the gist of it, this one in 2005, was someone had written racial slurs on the door of a lawn resident, and the lawn is UVA sort of like centerpiece uh, area of the campus where uh, fourth-year students or senior students who are unusually accomplished uh, can get a room, and it's like a big prestigious thing, and. There's always been a problem with representation on the lawn. And so a black student on the lawn had a racial slurs written on their lawn, I mean, written on their door. Um, there was, I think, another incident, and it became sort of like a a big uh, campus uh, point of discussion. And that may seem, in, 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 in Missouri, this is similar things happen um, in the past couple months with racial slurs being written on people's doors and people saying racial slurs. And I think from the outside... It, it it feels like it might be kind of minor, just like, you know, people, I mean, people are assholes, get over it. Uh, but I think as an African-American student at a flagship university um, and a, a predominantly white institution, it's it's hard to overstate how isolating that can be at times, even if you're coming from a middle class background, even if you're coming from a background where most of your peers were white, there is something about um, an institution that, in a lot of ways, was not actually built for people like you and, and you being there. And so UVA has this like long, complicated history with African-American students and with the African-American community in Charlottesville. I just want to say, Jamal, that's a really good answer. I'm glad you said it. And I don't want my questioning to be interpreted as insensitivity. I mean, you could interpret it. How, oh, well, one of course could, not. Not you. One could, a yeah. listener could interpret it however they want. I just, there was, to me, a lot of um, ambivalence around all these issues here. But I think what you're saying is exactly right. And I think it comes down to if this president was just not adequately addressing the problem of these students, then something was wrong. Ipso and facto. I, and I, a public official. Right. And I want to add that, like, part of it, the 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 you you know people saying racial slurs people sprawling things on walls that's sort of the stuff that people notice but oftentimes because these are institutions that don't seem to be built for students of color and black students in particular there are lots of just little things that happen that you do brush off and sometimes it does come to, the little things there are the rel things that may seem relatively minor end up coming to a head because what they represent is sort of a, a fine point on. I hate the term, but, you know, countless microaggressions. And to get back to the football players specifically, 8% of the undergraduate population at Missouri is uh, black and 50% of the football team is black. And so you look around the locker room and you're like, well, you know, this group doesn't look like the rest of the group on campus. What, is, what does that say about what, how the administration feels about us or right. people like us? And the other fascinating thing to me is that what this shows is that college athletes have tremendous power, right? but they're also tremendously vulnerable. Their scholarships can mm -hmm. get taken away for no reason. You literally do not have to provide a reason. You can just take <laughs> away a scholarship. And so the unity of the team is very important here. There were reports at ESPN.com, an anonymous white player said, we're not all behind this. We think that it'll blow over, but there are a lot of players on the team who aren't don't really agree with this. But publicly, they did all you know, pose for a photo, the coach supported them. And I think what this shows to the Missouri players and to college athletes everywhere is that, you know, if you stand united, you cannot be divided. Um, <laughs> and what a remarkable, you know, what a kind of remarkable accomplishment so quickly. And when you, I think when you break down, when you parse the power that the players have and you put it in naked economic terms, you realize 
and the players should realize just what kind of strength they do have. If if Missouri hadn't played BYU on Saturday, we still by the way, know. not on campus. Yeah, we still don't know what the, you know the players. Whether, yeah, we don't know the at status. The time we're recording this. We yes. don't know the status of the players or practice or their willingness to participate in, in the next games. But if they were not to play BYU on Saturday, a game, by the way, there was a home game for Missouri, but not scheduled for to be played on campus, but at Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. If they don't play in that game, it's at least, you know, it's millions of dollars in revenue for the university. It's a million dollars that would have to be paid to BYU for the game being canceled. It is a tremendous economic engine, like it or not, on campuses like UVA, like Missouri, like these other big public and some private institutions. And the players have been told for generations that they are not the engine for all of this. They've been told that they are there by the the, the grace of the university and their coaches um, and the opportunity that they are being given and not that they have a real power to influence the way not only the team or the athletic department, but more broadly, how the university functions. And Jamal, I just wanted to finish up by um, asking you, this campus is 100 miles away from Ferguson, right. some reports, and it makes sense that a lot of the anger on campus towards the system president was feeling that, you know, the protests there were not really registered. They weren't mm-hmm. really acknowledged. Um, and so, I, you know, you wrote a great piece for Slate on the anniversary, the one year anniversary, about how Ferguson um, sort of changed things around the country. And so how do you think this fits in? Like, how does how is what happened on the Missouri campus reflective of the kind of movement since Ferguson? I mean, I think it's very much reflective of the extent to which Ferguson, I think, has essentially radicalized a whole generation of at least like educated um, African-American kids, um, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds who who witnessed the events in Ferguson. And a not insubstantial portion of the black kids on Missouri campus are from that area. Right. Who, Who witnessed what happened in Ferguson, who saw if not the hostility of authorities, then certainly the indifference, right? And I think that's the complaint here with the with the now former president of the school, a, a sense of indifference to what happened to a community that many of the students have some kind of tie to, whether it's a direct tie, whether um, they know people uh, who are from there, whether they kind of just drove two hours to Ferguson to participate in the protest. And they saw what was happening in, in Ferguson as, as of a piece with the kind of climate that they experienced at Missouri. And so... I would guess that sort of like we're still in the in the early stages of what that kind of radicalization can produce. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this might end up being one of those sort of landmark moments um, in the kind of activism that we'll be able to trace back to the events in Ferguson. And, and Bill Roden points out in his column in the sports section of The New York Times on Monday, what's interesting about the football players action here, too, is that it's not about a sports issue. It's not about right. image rights or labor with NCAA rules or their stipends. It's about a social issue. And I think that can be interpreted as a reflection on what you just said, Jamel. Jamel, thanks for joining us. You're going to be writing a piece on this. So we'll we'll let you get back to it. All right. Thank you for having me. Jamel Bowie is Slate's chief political correspondent. Now time for a word from our sponsor, Mile IQ. From appointments with clients, meetings, Terrans, unless you're at your desk all day, then you're one of the 60 million Americans who drives for work and you're either spending too much time tracking every mile or you're guesstimating and you end up losing money. 
Mile IQ as the solution you've been looking for. It's the number one mileage tracker app, and it's the only one that detects, logs, and calculates your drives for you automatically. I was actually on a reporting trip in Illinois last week. Since I had Mile IQ installed, I didn't have to do anything. It logged all my driving, just prompted me at the end of the day to swipe left or swipe right, indicate whether it was a personal or a business drive. Since this was a business trip, drives were all business, baby. Cha-ching. If you drive for work, you're not counting every single mile, then you're burning money every time you take a drive. The average Mile IQ user logs $547 a month in drives, and Mile IQ has a five-star rating in the Google Play and iTunes stores. So stop wasting time manually tracking your miles. Stop losing money you should be claiming. Try Mile IQ for free. Text the word hang up to 31996. That's hang up, all one word, to 31996 to download the Mile IQ app and start your free trial. Standard messaging and data rates apply. Bill McCartney is a football coach and a Christian, and he was never afraid to combine the two. As the head coach of Colorado from 1982 to 1994, he led the Buffaloes to a national championship. During that time, he also founded the Christian men's organization, the Promise Keepers, which once drew as many as 800,000 men to a rally on the National Mall. McCartney is the subject of the documentary, The Gospel According to Mac, part of ESPN's 30 for 30 series, directed by Jim Potteritz and written and produced by Jonathan Hawk. In this clip, Colorado wide receiver Lance Carl describes McCartney's recruiting techniques, and the coach then chimes in himself. Coach Mack comes to my house, walks into my house, shakes my hand and says, get lost for two hours. Like, aren't you here to see me? He said, I want to be with your mom for two hours. I come back two hours later, they're at the dining room table reading the Bible. I was not ashamed of my faith. And many times in the African-American home, mom is a woman of faith. Not every time. Sometimes it would turn off people. But oftentimes she would say, I know where you're going. You're going with him. You're going with that guy. So pretty much exactly how David Plotz recruited me to Slate. Um, <laughs> joining us now is Hang Up and Listen favorite, Jonathan Hawk. Hey, John. Hi, Josh. Um, great movie, John. Uh, Thank it's you. It's about so many things. Uh, religion, race, family, and and team, team sports in college. And Bill McCartney is at the center of all of it. As the documentary shows, he's a really admirable guy in a lot of ways, but a lot of his views, at least in my view, are really regressive and repugnant. So was that all there for you from the beginning of the process of making the movie? Or did your views on McCartney evolve as you guys were making it? Yeah, our views on, on McCartney evolved during the process. We started thinking, oh boy, um, how are how are we going to do a film about somebody we hate? Mm -hmm. You know, his his views, uh, very public views on homosexuality, uh, anti-abortion, and the the way he's gone about, um, you know, uh, publicly promoting his his very rigid views. Um, you know, they we had a very uh, clear picture of him, which was very one sided. And as we got to know him, we discovered that you really can't put him in a box. You really can't say he's this type and everything that he believes and has done, more importantly, than what he professes, what he's actually done in his life, uh, can't be put into that box. He's incredibly progressive on race, for example. He was 
speaking. He was kind of making an argument for for reparations, almost speaking t- uh, to the idea of white privilege in the in the nineteen eighties when not a lot of white people certainly were were talking about that. And um, there's just a lot of sides to him that uh, we found really compelling as we were making the project. And I would say of all the films we've done for ESPN, this was more a process of discovery than, than any of them. You know, and I, I, we, we talked, I had watched the first half of the film and we spoke and I said, you know, I started out hating him. You know, he shows up at, uh, at Colorado. He tells the president of the university who's Jewish that he had given his life to Jesus Christ. He's my master, my redeemer. And... The president says, that's awesome. And I immediately thought, well, the president should have said, that's awesome, but you need to separate that from your job, dude. This is a public institution. But then as the film progresses, you get to that point where where McCartney was such a vocal and outspoken supporter of his players in predominantly white Boulder, these kids whom he recruited from inner cities who in some cases had never been in an environment that was that was predominantly white were getting into trouble were being discriminated against were getting you know pulled over by cops and harassed on campus and followed and he publicly on television in front of microphones defends them and their behavior and, talks and, about and, white and, privilege. and talks about white privilege and talks about and tries to get this this lily white community to understand for a second what it must be like for these kids to arrive here. Well, that that was, of all the discoveries we made, the greatest one, the most important one to the film was that uh, he had, in the way he says it is, is typical of him, that it's very offensive the way he says it to many people, but he's just speaking his mind. And he said, I realized, you know, after a few years of losing games to Oklahoma and Nebraska and the rest in the Big Eight, that we had to have, in his words, the great black athlete. And he started recruiting. He was actually something that's not in the film. He was the first coach at one of the major conferences to have a uh, a staff that was the majority of the assistant coaches were African-American. Uh, they had nine assistant coaches, five were African-American. And they would go to Compton. They'd go to Detroit and, and recruit these kids and uh, bring them to Boulder, which was over 99% white and where they were not welcome. Uh, so we discovered this whole side to him and side to the story and something that the players, uh, the largely African-American players, but not entirely African-American roster at the time, they really wanted to talk about it too. We were supposed to deliver a film that was 77 minutes and we delivered our first cut at something like 115 minutes and said, well, we can shorten it, but the only way we're going to get to 77 is if we take out the whole thing on race. And ESPN said... No, we uh, we want to keep it. No, it was remarkable. I mean, McCartney, this is what, in the 1980s, calling for more black teachers, administrators, students, role models, mentors on this campus. And I and what struck me this morning in reading about what was going what's going on at the University of Missouri is that in the 1980s, you needed a head coach who had the platform to stand up for athletes. And look where we are now. The black football players on a major college team are pressuring the university for the resignation of its president, which occurred. So I, as as we're working in the cutting room, I'm, I'm listening to Mike Pesca and listening to Josh Levine every week and thinking, hmm, I'm suspicious of this progressive stance on race. Is he just being incredibly pragmatic and shrewd 
and he's saying, I need to keep these great players here if I'm going to keep my job by winning football games. So I'm going to say things that I know they want to hear, even if I don't believe them. And I thought that that might be true. Certainly many football coaches in America would uh, would behave that way. So, uh, But then you get to the last act of the film where we get into the promise keepers. And when he uh, founded the group and went started preaching around the country, the first thing he started preaching about was not what promise keepers was known for, which was the uh, you know these sort of um, antiquated notion of of what husbands and wives are, and this fundamentalist uh, sense of the male as the leader of the family. Um, it was racial reconciliation, and that's what he chose to speak on, and he jeopardized the future of the entire enterprise by preaching to thousands of white Christian men that the most important thing they could do in their lives is understand their black brothers. And uh, so he he sort of proved it to me. So I don't think he's not genuine. I don't actually have any criticisms of him as a person for who he is and the milieu he comes from. But, you know, his pro-Christian stance helped him in football, helped him recruit. His Mm -hmm. pro-African-American stance helped him in football, helped get better players on his team. The other area where he doesn't seem to have kind-heartedness, which is uh, gay people, that wouldn't help him at all with football, and he hasn't changed his idea on the subject at all. Now, maybe that's because he hasn't encountered many gay people. Maybe that's because doctrine is, you know, as he interprets it, is so much much stricter or clearer as he interprets it about gay people. But I do notice this, that all of his stances, whatever his brave stances, his, his religious stances, his moral stances, did help him in football. Yeah, Michael Sam probably would not have felt comfortable coming out on that, on a Bill McCartney coach team. I think you're right. And I think, you know, that's the thing that's so compelling about Coach Mack. It's not like a story of this uh, Christian hero to me either. It's this guy who's very, very right sometimes and very, very wrong sometimes and loudly wrong when he's wrong. And it's very uh, challenging as a filmmaker to deal with a subject that you can't categorize as a hero or a villain, um, he's certainly a protagonist. <laughs> and and he uh, the, the way he ends the film with the ambiguity um, of his feelings about the mistakes that he's made and admits to, uh, but the reason he feels okay about it all, which he, you know, look, life is filled with heartache and despair for... Um, you know, everybody, not not filled with it, but certainly it's present in, in all of our lives. And he's chosen to deal with it through this extremely rigid faith and uh, sense that uh, joy unspeakable is coming in the afterlife. And um, he, he, some people might accuse him of sweeping his mistakes under the rug uh, with the comfort of that. Uh, afterlife that he believes is coming for him, but um, and maybe not for me, for example. But um, you know, I think uh, I think he owns up to everything that he's done, and and if he doesn't really care if you like him or not, he certainly didn't care whether we liked him or not. Let's talk a little bit about ethics in football, and I think the 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 most telling moment in McCartney's career occurred in 1990. Uh, the championship season. They shared the national championship. That was in voting era. Uh, they started the season 1-1-1. One, one, and one. Uh, 
Um, and then they were playing Missouri, and they benefited from a mistake by the on-field officials that allowed them to have an extra down. It's famously known as the fifth down game. And what you demonstrate without explicitly showing in the film, John, is that McCartney knew that he knew what down it was. He knew that they had forgotten to both flip the yarded, the, the down markers on the field, and then also the scoreboard operator had forgotten to add a down. And the net result was that Colorado was able to spike the ball on what would have been fourth down to stop the clock, to give them another shot from what was at the one or two yard line. And they scored. And Charles Johnson, who was the quarterback of the team, sort of points that out to McCartney when McCartney says, we're going to spike it and then we're going to run this play. So here's our, our wonderful Christian man refusing to be honest in the context of a football game. Is football different? Did McCartney have a response to that? Well, he's – I mean he did have a response to it, which is in the film that if uh, you know, he felt that the playing conditions – that game, the turf was so threadbare at right. Missouri that an option offense, which relies on a lot of lateral movement and cutting sharply upfield, that they slipped and fell 168 times in the game. And the footage certainly bears that out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as Jay Lewenberg, the center on the team who went on to play for the Bears, I don't know who else in the NFL, but he, um, he was the one who really knew what down it was. And he was not particularly proud of Coach Mack only wanting to focus on them all slipping and falling when they all knew they had five downs. But I think it's it's kind of great, you know, that there's this moment where you're you're playing this game and it's you you're constantly taking what's given, right? That's that's the game. And I don't know if uh coach Mack had to walk uh, through the lion's den and uh he found a trick that uh helped him escape and while somebody else got eaten, would he uh would he have not done that? I don't know. You know, the, he was a football coach. I don't know how nakedly unethical it was. I mean, they don't call the spike on fourth down if the down markers are set, and you can't prove that whatever play they would have ran on fourth wouldn't have been that fifth down play. Anyway, let's put that aside for a second and talk about the Jews. Um, so he left Promise Keepers, and he did, what is it, Road to Jerusalem? Yes. Yeah. And he has a book. I have the title right here. Two-minute warning why it's time to honor Jewish people before the clock runs out. Now, <laughs> Great title. Yeah. Now you're That was actually after meeting me. He, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, John, you're Jewish. The, uh, Jim Podhoritz, director, Jewish? Jim Podhoritz, Jewish. All right. All right. Is, is it just, hey, let's reconcile with our Jewish brethren? Or <laughs> as I read this, this is a revelation says that, you know, Jews have to control the promised land. Was there any conversation? Awkward or... Uh, illustrative conversations around this? Uh, there weren't. Um, there <laughs> How do you weren't. bring it up? <laughs> no, you know, there's there's this uh, strain of, of uh, Christianity that believes very strongly that, you know, the Jews have to uh, return to the Holy Land for prophecy to be fulfilled and for us all to be saved and for, for Christ to come back, right? I mean, I'm sure I'm getting a little bit of that wrong, but... But it's okay, uh, you're Jewish. That's yeah, fine, uh, we'll allow uh, it. Uh, but they, uh, and I I know he believes this very strongly, so, um, you know, it ob objectifies me maybe a little bit, but, you know, look, I'm, uh, I'm not going to take offense to that personally. I, I have some friends and family members who do. I remember my dad used to get really upset that 
because I think at the end of prophecy, we don't get to go to heaven. Even well, though, part, yeah, part shit. of this is the Jews have to be there, but they eventually have to become Christians. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, personally, I don't mind. And So uh, it's a two-minute warning, but do, how many timeouts do we have left? <laughs> I, need, I need more information. And, you know, and some, the rules change. Is this NFL rules or college rules? Right, yeah. First down, reset the yeah, clock. Yeah, if you have one foot Instant in replay. Jerusalem, are yeah. you inbounds? <laughs> <laughs> so we haven't even mentioned yet. The team star quarterback uh, impregnating the coach's daughter and subsequently dying. Of so cancer. scientific the way you say it. There are kind of three stories here. There's um, the story of Solanesi and the quarterback and dying and impregnating the coach's daughter. There's uh, the story of race on campus, and there's the story of like the team, I guess, coming together and winning the championship. This must have presented a lot of narrative challenges to you. I mean, one way you addressed the challenge, as you said earlier, is just to make the film longer. Um, but how do you deal with a story with so many different strands? I mean, this could have been several different documentaries. Yeah, well, we, we felt that those, those elements that you mentioned were really critical, that you couldn't really tell the whole story without any of them. Um, you know, the soap opera stuff, the, the daughter is a student at the university, and she gets pregnant by the quarterback of the team who's not just the quarterback but really the central figure, the star, the best player, the first real major recruit that they get. And, you know, this is a girl who hasn't had much of her father's attention in her life to that point. Well, she got his attention. She got a lot of people's attention and it was uh, – and then, of and he course, says it's like she got pregnant because of his failings as a father, exactly. which is like self-centered much. <laughs> that's the real promise keepers stuff, which is, uh, yeah, that it's it's the male leader of the family is res the, who's responsible for all the you know behavior of the women in the family, and uh, he uh, he was you know part of this incredible soap opera, and that was sort of central to the. Um, the reason I think ESPN wanted to do the film was because it was, I mean, what a sensation. The quarterback of the team gets the coach's daughter pregnant out of wedlock, and then he dies of cancer. And it's the most loved player on the team, the most important player on the team, and this incredible tragedy. And then they rally around it and eventually win a national championship. I mean, it's really stuff that you can't uh, – well, you could script it, but – um, you wouldn't because it's it's just too much. Um, so in terms of the challenge of fitting it all into 100 minutes, you just have to stay as close to the bone as you can, give as much flavor. And, you know, the, the great thing we had working for us was Mac is an incredible interview, incredibly charismatic guy. His daughter, Christy, was incredibly forthcoming and honest and at once very vulnerable seeming but very strong. There's a point in the film where she talks about a fan from Nebraska abusing her and you see the pain and then you feel this sort of steel inside her rise up and she looks up and she meets the interviewer's gaze straight on and you're like, wow. Let's actually listen to that clip. I remember being surprised at how mean people were why would anyone even care? We were at Nebraska. It was before the game. There was some drunk guy just yelling at the top of his lungs about 
me and what a slut I was and this and that. And it was, I mean, what are the odds I'm going to be walking by at that very moment? So that was pretty brutal. Mac's interview and Christie's interview were really the key to the film because they carried that sort of tawdry part of the story with real dignity and real inner strength in the best the best sense of that. And then finally, the seven or eight Colorado players that we interviewed were all amazing, honest, colorful, funny, touching. And I think if you look at the film, if you were to sort of break it down to how much of it is actually you're looking at somebody being interviewed and how much of it is archival footage. Yeah. There's a lot more interview stuff in these 100 minutes than mm-hmm. than we usually do. But these guys were all so great. And Mac is incredible. And Gary Barnett was great. Your man Les Miles did okay. And what was interesting about the player interviews, John, I thought was – you know, reading again between the lines of the subtext was that their need to compartmentalize how Mac treated them as young men in the context of being African-American students in Boulder, Colorado, uh, against what they might really believe about his conservative Christian views. Yeah, I don't know what they I think you're right. I mean, I think it was just that's Mac. And, you know, he's got our back. You know, this man goes to the Boulder City Council and says, these guys are not the problem. You're the problem. As Darian Hagan, the quarterback who followed Salinesi, said, uh, you know, you have this Caucasian coach who's down with you from start to finish. And that meant so much to us. And Chad Brown, who played 13 or 14 seasons in the NFL, is talking about you know, a football moment. Like after those first three games in 1990 when they were 1-1-1, and he called out a bunch of players and he said, Chad, you've hurt me the most. And Chad Brown starts crying. What is it, 25 years later, the guy's had a great NFL career. He's a, a, a lifetime removed from that. And it still makes him cry to think about that moment in practice in a, with a football team and and... You know, I think that's that's like the reason we keep making films about football, not not necessarily watching the games, but these films is that this this team making and what the players do psychologically to themselves submerge their identities to become part of a team, a greater whole to achieve something greater than they can achieve on their own. It's it's an extraordinary thing when it happens. And when they won the national championship with all the controversy and the phantom clip and the orange bowl and all that, still what they have together that endures to this day and how present it is, uh, it's very inspiring to me, I got to say. John, the film is great. It's going to be re-airing on ESPN uh, regularly, the ESPN family-o networks. Um, It's called The Gospel According to Mac. Thanks, as always. Oh, thank you guys for having me. I love it. Jonathan Hawk is the writer and producer of The Gospel According to Mac. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. 
Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. All right, now it is time for Afterballs. You uh, mentioned, you brought it up, Stefan, the fifth down game uh, for Colorado against Missouri. Um, Missouri. I wanted to uh, name our Afterballs after another uh, fifth down game. 1940, Cornell was ranked number two, had 18 straight wins. They were losing to Dartmouth. This was like big time college football back in the day. The ref mistakenly gave them a fifth down. Uh, Cornell scored on a TD pass to win. Seven to three, officials discovered their error after the game. Cornell's players, the coach, the athletic director, and the president sent a telegram to Dartmouth offering to forfeit the game. Do you think that Dartmouth accepted the forfeit or did they not accept the forfeit? No, because that would be the counter sportsmanship thing to do. They did accept the forfeit. They were like, yeah, we'll, we'll take the win. Fucking so the coach, the coach of Cornell was Carl mm. Snavely. It would, be, it would be immoral to let them not save face. <laughs> we'll, we'll allow you to that do what That would be the counter sportsmanship. Yes, we're only doing this because otherwise it would hurt your sense of self-worth. Yeah. Don't you think a guy named Carl Snavely would be the one who'd villainously not forfeit but no carl snavely he was too busy twirling his mustache to think clearly about the issue (laughs) so mike what is your carl snavely daniel murphy was extended a 15.8 million dollar qualifying offer by the new york mets the qualifying offer of course can only be 15.8 million dollars and when i heard that i said to myself he's not going to take it you know because no one ever takes a qualifying offer and when i said no one ever takes a qualifying offer i mean like come on no one ever wins the lottery of course someone has won the lottery or you know no porn star ever goes legit but of course sasha gray and i believe before her meryl streep did that exact route but do you know that no one has ever taken the qualifying offer. No one has ever taken the qualifying offer. It only goes back about three years. And I was finding this out when I was looking up the history of the qualifying offer. Came across this article in SB Nation, How Do MLB Qualifying Offers Work? A Guide to the Process. Now, I'm no editor, but I think sentence one or sentence two should be now. Before we tell you how they work, the first thing you need to know is this. No one has ever taken the qualifying offer. But we get one paragraph in. It's free agency set to begin on Tuesday, blah, blah, blah. Second one, MLB's qualifying offer rules, which were developed to help free determine free agent compensation, blah, blah, blah. What is the qualifying offer? Teams must make their departing players a qualifying offer in order to be eligible for draft pick compensation. The value of the qualifying offer changes. I'm four paragraphs in. I'm five paragraphs in. I'm six paragraphs in. Finally, they let me in on the fact that no one has ever taken the qualifying offer. Now, the reason no one ever takes a qualifying offer 
from the players' perspective, is that they think they could do better in free agency. Are they right? Yes. They have always been right. And there was a good test case last year where Kyle Loesch, who's not a great pitcher, but has a really good had a really good year with the Cardinals, was given the qualifying offer. He says, I am a pitcher. We are a valuable commodity. I'm going to turn down the qualifying offer. Well, he wasn't signed. And so it was like, this is the one guy who should have taken the qualifying offer. And then he was signed for $33 million over three years. So even though Daniel Murphy will not get $15.8 million next year, he'll get a three-year contract because everyone gets a three-year contract. And the three-year contract will be worth, I don't know, 20-something, 30-something million dollars. So it won't be smart to take the qualifying offer. By the way, the whole reason the system exists is it's, it's like adding a burden to your free agents. So Teams have free agents. They throw that qualifying offer on him. It's supposed to be tempting for the free agent to say yes, but other teams won't want to sign him because they have to give him back a draft pick. It's a way for teams to get compensated for a draft pick. Now, clearly, right, clearly this process, whereas I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but no one has ever taken the qualifying offer. Clearly, this process is not working. Except when ESPN, uh, Jason Stark of ESPN last year started asking around to GMs, hey, what can we do to fix the qualifying offer system? Because, I don't know, uh, Jason Stark didn't have to mention this to the GMs, but no one's ever taken the qualifying offer. An AL executive said, I think the system's functioning more or less as it was intended to function. The market just hasn't adjusted quite yet. What? Another GM said, someone will someday take the qualifying offer. Here, in fact, it was Brewers GM Doug Melvin. Until somebody accepts the qualifying offer, how could we tell whether it's working or not? That's the definition of it not working, Doug Melvin. It's like saying, you know, until someone buys a whole bunch of new Coke, how could we say new Coke was a failure? So this year, there are a couple guys, I've seen a couple nominations for guys who could take the qualifying offer might think they'd do better with that one year $15.8 million than it would in free agency. And CBS Sports suggests Marco Estrada could do it. There is no way Marco Estrada, the way he pitched down the stretch, the way he pitched down the playoffs, the way pitchers are valued would possibly take the qualifying offer. Ian Kennedy, not a good pitcher, but pitchers get paid more. Ian Desmond, terrible year. But before that, Not a guy who's going to take the qualifying offer. I'd love to see if someone takes the qualifying offer. But until then, it is true, and I don't know if I've said this before, but no one has ever taken the qualifying offer. I guess you would take the qualifying offer if you, like, get hit by a bus. Yeah, or if you're, like, um, a fan who just has season tickets and they mistakenly offer it to you. (laughs) Oh, Ian Kennedy? No, I'm Steve Kennedy, but I'll take it, I'll take it. Paperwork filed. (laughs) Stefan, what is your Carl Snavely? Well, I was talking the other day with a friend about daily fantasy and the ubiquity of its awful television commercials, which led immediately to a conversation about another sports gambling operation and its television commercials, this one from our childhoods, and that would be New York City off-track betting. Uh, NYC OTB was established in 1970. At its peak, OTB had more than 150 storefront parlors around the city and generated an annual handle of about a billion dollars. OTB took money out of the hands of bookies, funneled it to the city and to the horse racing industry. Then-Mayor Ed Koch once called OTB civil service. He meant that employees, including hundreds of Vietnam veterans, got pensions and health benefits, which were taken away after OTB, brought down by patronage, declining revenue and rising expenses, filed for bankruptcy and was shuttered in 2010. 
but it was culturally that OTB really resonated. Those parlors with OTB's green neon rounded like a track rollerball font logo with the O and B connected underneath were among the skeeviest, smokiest, and most democratic places in New York, one of the last pre-Disney, pre-gentrification working class city institutions. And oh my God, the commercials. One 1986 ad featured the testimony of alleged OTB customers. They included a permed and shoulder padded account executive, a hairstylist with a Patrick Swayze dirty dancing do, and a members only ish jacket. And this central casting Vinny from Queens type, John Cuomo, whose profession is identified as personnel. If I can't make it here, I usually have my phone account, which all I do is I have my little card here, and boom, I call in, and I have my action from over the phone. Boom, got my action over the phone. That era slogan for OTB was New York City OTB, changing for the better. That's B-E-T-T-O-R, changing for the better. But the heyday of OTB, both commercially and in commercials, was the 1970s. The signature OTB ads are every bit as compelling as the second verse of Meet the Mets, every bit as iconic as Joe Namath shaving his legs, every bit as New York sports as the Schaefer beer ad that I will play another day in another after ball. Here's a classic from 1976. All right, so the first singer was frequent game show and talk show guest Professor Erwin Corey. And I'm not sure I would have gotten that had the the YouTube clip not said Professor Erwin Corey on it, Mike, and I think you agree with that. Well, I think I would have gotten it, but it was, I can't really tell, honestly. There was a lot of Erwin Corey posters around. Yeah, yep. but the other two were not identified. Uh, the second, I think, is uh, comedian Elaine Boozler. Oh, I think it's Lanny Kazan. You think it's with Lanny the big, Kazan? The big, um, no, it's the definitely hair? not Elaine Boozler. Elaine Boozler's a redhead, and it's just not Elaine Boozler. I Googled Elaine Boozler images, and her hair She's color did change percent not Lanny. Uh, it's, All right. Let's look up Lanny Kazan. All right, go ahead. Right, While you do that, up. I'm going to go on. I didn't recognize the third person. Uh, I think it was Ben Vereen from God from It Pippen. is not Ben Vereen no? for okay. sure, and I will tell you why. Right. Anyway, the New York Bets is what the ad slogan was there, because New York had the Mets and the Jets for more than a decade, of course, and the sets of World Team Tennis had joined the Ets lineup just a couple <laughs> of years earlier, the New York sets. So New York Bets totally piggybacking on the sets, surefire way to get the kids to become fans of more than one team and go to the track. Um, or at least go to OTB. OTB did a series of those ads. They featured each celebrity pulling on an OTB sweatshirt while singing and then making goofy, actory facial expressions. Here's one more. Are you ready to play on the hottest team in town today? It's the New York Bats. The only thing more convenient than OTB's many offices are New York's 10 million telephones. To open an OTB telephone account or to find out more about one, call this number. Two four five seven nine hundred. Then you can leave all the running to the horses. So come on in and join the crowd. What a horsey set with the New York Bats, the New York Bats, the New York Bats. All right, you gave away that one, Mike, because that's Ben Vereen. He was oh, at the peak of his celebrity, God. thanks to his starring role as leading player in Pippin on Broadway. The other one, Josh. Let's date you. You didn't show me the video. <laughs> 
You don't need to see the video. Could you understand the voice? Couldn't couldn't make out the voice. No. No. Pasco. Henny Youngman. Henny Youngman. <laughs> Good call, Mike Pasco. Josh, what's your Carl Snavely? So who does not love a live animal mascot? Well, PETA, for one, which notes on its website in a sentence with very strange syntax that nothing says go team less than an unhappy animal. But who besides PETA doesn't love a live animal mascot? Probably a lot of people. But let's just proceed with talking about Ralphie the Buffalo, the Colorado mascot, Bill McCartney School, who began her career in Ralphie is Always the She in 1966. There had been a live bison at Colorado football games prior to Ralphie, one named Mr. Chips, who came on the scene in 1957. <laughs> According to a write-up by the University Library, one of the students responsible for Mr. Chips's upkeep said the dean at the time worried aloud how we could ever protect the crowd if the buffalo got loose. The student said, we thought about shooting him, but that wouldn't work. The crowd was in the background. Then we thought about bringing him in a cage or truck, but that wouldn't be very impressive. We had to find a way to bring him in alive and kicking, as it were, thus the idea of five guys on each side. McKinney went on to describe how they loaded up the buffalo with enough tranquilizers to kill 10 men, which made me think that maybe PETA has a point. But I want to get back to the five men and women herding the buffalo. That tradition is still alive today, and the people who do it are called Ralphie Handlers. You can actually letter in Ralphie Handling at Colorado, and the team's trainer says the handlers are like defensive backs crossed with farmers. Can you major in Ralphie Handling? You can letter? You can letter, but you can't major. <laughs> Ralphie weighs about 1,600 pounds and sprints around the field before each game at around 25 miles per hour. There are two handlers in the front by Ralphie's head, two by the rear legs, and one at the end. So you can guess which is the place of honor for a Ralphie handler. One of the hazards... A senior. It, senior uh, gets together. One of the hazards of the job is stepping in uh, Ralphie's poo, which apparently happens every day. There's also the risk of Ralphie potentially killing you, though there's supposedly only been one serious accident when Ralphie 4, that's IV, because live mascots always have Roman numeral like names. Georgia Bulldog, yeah. Um, Ralphie Four, whose quote-unquote real name is Rowdy, uh, tossed a handler named Megan McCarthy in 2003, leaving her with permanent horn-derived scars. In 1995, Ralphie nearly ran over the Kansas team. In 2008, Ralphie got loose at the spring game with only one of the handlers hanging on for dear life. There's also a YouTube video captioned, Ralphie takes aim at a CU staff member. And on the allbuffs.com message board, I don't know if Meryl Streep is on there, allbuffs.com, someone writes about witnessing a student reach through the pen to pat Ralphie on the nose. Ralphie swung her head sideways and smashed the kid's hand against the pen. I'm fairly certain there were a few bones broken. All right, so before you start donating to, to PETA's Get Ralphie the Hell Out of Colorado program, if you're feeling bad, consider that back in 2002, um, a reporter for the Iowa State Daily noted that Ralphie Four had been rescued as a calf from the jaws of a coyote, and that after that, the herd would not accept her. So running around the fields, handled by students who let her in Ralphie handling, that's at least better than getting eaten, mauled to death by a coyote. I think we can all agree mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Long live Ralphie. We'd love your feedback when we talked about today. Oh, could I interrupt you? 
Of course. I got I got late breaking info. What? According to the PaleyCenter.org, the OTB ad starred Professor Erwin Corey. The last one was Bobby Short. And in the middle, Ooh. the lady with the big dark yeah. hair, Lanny Kazan. All right. I know my Lanny Kazan. Yeah. Bobby Short should have gotten that. Yeah, mm, Bam. Yeah, definitely not Ben Vereen. I was thrown by uh, uh, alternative conflicting information. Yeah. Okay. We love your feedback and what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen to iTunes. Leave us a comment and a rating. And you can do that at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.